0: This is Jewish Board Talk with Sharif Zephard, only on 101.9 High fm
1: On the 16th of August 2012, the South African police opened fire on a crowd of striking work- workers at Marikana in the Northwest Province. 34 mine workers were killed and 78 seriously injured. Award-winning photojournalist Alon Skye was there that day. He has now put together a book of his photographs that chronicle the moments leading up to during and after the shootings. The book is entitled Marikana 2012-2022, and I'm delighted to have Alon as my guest now. Alon, welcome and thank you so much for joining me.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: There had already been tension in Marikana, which explains why there was already a high presence of media. What were the days before Marikana, the the actual shooting, like?
0: The workers of uh, London, they embarked on on a strike. In the days leading up to the massacre which happened on the 16th of august and that happened at about uh, the shooting at scene one happened at about 3 50 pm which was the most violent use of force by the south african uh, police service against civilians since the Sharpeville massacre it was covering uh, the day up up to the event plus the day itself and in the lead up to the event there were incidents that happened between mine workers Um, police, non-striking miners that created, as you say, a lot of tension in the area. The mine was very hard-pressed to try and put an end to the strike. A lot of pressure was being placed for police to take action. And uh, this, uh, yeah, this all unfolded on the 16th. And um, in the lead-up, the day before and on the day, there was uh, actually a very heavy air of dread. I mean, it was a really uh, negative energy and... um, People felt that something was going to happen. The miners were demanding a living wage, as they put it, of 12,500 rand. And um, there was an impasse and, and there was no conclusion reached. And this culminated in the event.
1: Alon, do we know what they were earning before?
0: In the region of 4,800 rand.
1: So we're we talking about real, real little money for people who are literally literally at the coalface
0: exactly. of industrial society of industrial society toiling the earth and um, huge amounts of money were being made and uh, these movements striking mine workers as well as partners, wives, who are also involved in, in the fight for a, for a decent living wage.
1: As a journalist, you must also have a sense. I mean, you've been in this uh, profession for a very long time. You must be able to read your your uh, situation. You said there was already a sense of dread, that something was going to happen. The tension was great. Where were the journalists?
0: Quite a number of journalists who were covering the story in the lead up to the event, plus the days and the days after, and as well have been doing work years after the event. In the book that is going to be published, and uh, launched on Sunday at the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide center their texts by Duren Tulsi and Eufriedo Ho that go into the lead-up, that go into the reverberations that have been felt years later. And there was c- kind of that loggerheads between the, the mine the police and the mine workers. And journalists were on the scene uh, negotiating to be at the Kupi to take pictures, to do interviews, which the miners allowed at some stage. And uh, yeah, What actually unfolded? Uh, Joseph Matundra, who was negotiating on behalf of the miners for Amku, he he came to the kopi and he had negotiations with the police and the the mine bosses to try and calm down the situation for the miners to leave the kopi. And that was in the morning and the miners weren't happy. They they wanted to hear from from the bosses, from the police. The police gave an ultimatum in the afternoon saying if the miners do not leave the puppy, there will be force used. And when the Manas were, were moving towards, off the Kopi, towards Nkaking, uh, informal settlement, settlement, which is um, a major area next to the Man, uh, there was a group of men that were moving forward. The police, had a, there, there was hundreds of police with a huge amount of ammunition, and they opened fire on these men at the scene one of the Kopi, just in front of the Kopi, where 17 men were killed. And then while that was happening, Almost simultaneous, or after that, there was another scene too that uh, didn't come out until later. That another seventeen people were killed, um, and and evidence points to the fact that many of these men were shot in the back and uh, with some with, with their hands raised. And that was that came out due to um, investigative work from the likes of uh, Greg Marinovich and other and other journalists who dug deeper um, beyond the official original narrative that there was only this first killing scene and that uh, the the police were protecting themselves from from the miners.
1: Alon you are taking were at scene one.
0: I was at scene one when the police they ordered people journalists away from the copy and myself and colleagues kind of went to the side and uh, we were on the side by cattle call between the miners and police on the side during scene one and then that scene after it happened that scene was uh, kind of closed off and no one knew first of all what was going on in scene two plus it was completely closed off by police uh,
1: were you shocked i mean we you and i've spoken you've um, published books on xenophobia you've been a guest before to talk about the work i mean you've seen terrible terrible things i were you shocked that day
0: so it was in com- a complete and utter shock how quickly the situation turned from kind of a protest to this complete use of deadly violent force. And after the, there was a lot of tear gas, rubber bullets, plus live ammunition. And um, after everything was so chaotic, I mean, at that scene, there was, I mean, obviously a lot of destroyed bodies, people who had been killed. And at the time when I was taking pictures, you don't even brain won't even let you realize that these men had been killed in this fashion so yes it was completely surreal completely shocking and it took a long time to process actually what had transpired
1: and on you your book which is absolutely beautiful in spite of the really really traumatic and horrific Um, subject matter your book is so beautiful and your pictures I mean really really capture the moment they capture the essence of the people um you've been what happened afterwards did you stay on to, to take photos and get stories or how did this book come about
0: So the book came about by, so after the the lead up in the day of the massacre on the 16th of August, I did follow up stories in Marikana, as well as there was a ceremony at the site of of the murders where families came to do ceremonies to try and cleanse, cleanse the kopi where their loved ones had died. And I uh, went back to those, uh, to that ceremony, as well as um, I was uh, assigned Also, by the Times newspaper, I was working at the time as the chief photographer to do um, coverage of the Farlam Commission, and um, also in 2020, I've been back to take aerial, geographic, and spatial images of the town of Marikana and of the various sites where things happen, as well as interviews with community members who are who are still struggling and there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of poverty and not much has changed in the community of Marikana uh, since since the massacre. Uh, there's a lot of problems with electricity as well as crime and also post-traumatic stress disorder. So people are still living the legacy of, of those events decade ago. And the book came about, I wanted to, to put it back into the public sphere to conscientize people about what did happen 10 years ago. And also as a warning and maybe a pause for reflection and also to commemorate those that died during those events so in the book there they are featured 44 people 10 in the lead up including uh two police officers lawmen, security guards uh as well as um, striking mine workers from scene one and, and scene two so i thought at 10 years people would be paying attention to the story of marikana and it, it really is a commemorative book just to yeah as i say conscientize and and stand as a as document of history not obviously a comprehensive, I mean, or a conclusive. There are so many journalists doing um, so much work around Marikana. That's just a point of reflection that the work that I've covered over over, um, a decade.
1: And when you talk about PTSD, um, Mm. did this book help you in any way deal with the trauma that you experienced and that they experienced?
0: Yeah, I I think in a way... There was a catharsis, but I also think it did bring to the fore these kind of things that you suppress over the years that you try and keep out of mind. You know, that, uh, oft, I mean, after the the 16th, I did struggle to go back, even when I went back in uh, three months ago. I mean, it was quite raw and it is quite, it's quite traumatic to still relive this, but uh, I suppose. As journalists, we put ourselves in these situations and, us, and, and yeah, we have to deal with it. We rely
1: on you, journalists to kind of bridge that immediacy. You know, you take the photos and we get to understand and interpret from that. So you write right there. There's, there's nothing between you and, and what you photograph. Um, it's other than, of course, your camera. Alon, you say that nothing much has happened in the 10 years there, that the area is still poverty-stricken. I'm sure there are still um, strikes. As South Africans, can we take from
0: this? Well, I think so. Firstly, there were... I think gains made by the strike 10 years ago as far as the resilience and the re- resolution to fight for a living wage so i think there is hope out of that and um, the stories of course of support of the wives and the women and i think i mean there have been uh small reparations families are still wanting to find closure and and, and they, they say that during the fallen commission not enough came out of it to know exactly what transpired on that day how their loved ones were killed in that manner. But I think, yeah, I think there needs to be, as far as the Nkakeng and Vonukop settlement, there needs to be maybe more programs, by like i more input. I mean, the mines have built kind of hostel residents and do pay for schooling, but I think a lot more can be done for uh, the upliftment of the area and uh, uh, more grassroots work in these areas. And also the fact that maybe to try and prevent lessons learned from policing, there surely are other ways to disperse crowds and using this force that reverberates so uh, so deeply, you know, in the uh, democracy of South Africa now.
1: When you spoke about live bullets mm. being used, um, obviously, mm. and um, do you think there's been accountability?
0: During, no one has been prosecuted. There, there has been really no accountability. There were two policemen who who did stand trial in the for events that happened in the lead up to um, the 16th, but there has really been no accountability and people have been been saying that there needs to be some sort of accountability and apology from government. Has
1: government never apologised? No. And and can I ask you, um, our President Cyril Ramaphosa's name was mentioned at the time. Um, what, What was his involvement?
0: So he was on the board of mine, I believe, and uh, there was quite a lot of pressure to put an end to the strike. Money was being lost and uh, came out in the, in the commission and previously that a mail was sent um from him to uh, saying that the police should take concomitant action. And I believe recently Surah Koza S- S- was in the news for a court case that's going on in Johannesburg at, at the High Court.
1: It's fascinating, and it just seems like an apology seems like a like a little thing to, to offer in light of what has happened. And as you say, a decade is a good amount of
0: time to reflect.
1: Alone, you are launching the book at the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Centre. Can you give me the details of that?
0: Yeah, so the book is being launched on Sunday at uh, 12 o'clock and there'll be two speakers, um, Yufira Ho and uh, Um and also two speakers, one journalist and a university lecturer who's done work on Marikana. And there'll also be a community me- member who will speak about uh, the current situation in Marikana. And um, yeah, the book will be sold there. And there'll be also um, a small exhibition I think, 12 to 14 images from that are uh, images contained in the book.
1: I remember how incredibly moving the launch of your book, Brother, was and also having people who'd experienced being part of the xenophobia who'd actually been saved by one of the journalists. So I I know how incredibly moving this one's going to be. If anybody's unable to attend for whatever reason, um, how do they get a copy of the book?
0: Uh, so it can be ordered through uh, the MAKER, so M-A-K-E-R, which is a publishing house, and maker.co.za, and, uh, or they can get in touch with the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Centre as well. And proceeds of the book will go to a, a fund to support people affected by the by the massacre.
1: Alone, and if anybody would like to attend the function, is RSVP essential or necessary?
0: Yeah, you RSVP to the... Um, Janisberg and Holocaust and Genocide Center.
1: I'm afraid I won't be there because I'm away next week. But I promise you, had I been in Joburg, I would have attended alone. I have seen the book. As I said, the photos are so incredibly beautiful and um, touching, I think is the word. So congratulations to you on on what what must have been literally a labor of love at some level and um, pain as well.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me uh, on your show. Thanks. Thanks, Cherise. And I hope you'll people at the launch,
1: yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was Alon Sky, award-winning photojournalist, whose book entitled Marikana 2012-2022 will be launched this Sunday at the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Centre. Thank
0: you. Thank you.